Attention, all troops. He's alive. Alive. Welcome to the Retroist. In 1984, I had the unique distinction of seeing two classic 80s movies back-to-back. Those movies were Ghostbusters and Gremlins. I saw Ghostbusters first. I was a big Bill Murray fan ever since Meatballs and would try to see everything he was in. So I went to see Ghostbusters, and I had heard a great deal about Gremlins. I was about to leave and go home when my friend said, hey, why don't we go back in the movies and go see Gremlins? It was getting kind of dark, but I thought, well, I don't have to be home anytime soon. It's the weekend. Why not? So I called my mom and asked her if it was okay if we stayed. She wasn't necessarily happy, but she said, okay, if you know when you're going to be home, I'll send your sister to come pick you up when you're done. Now, two movies in one day was something I'd never done before, so I was very excited. Ghostbusters was a fun movie. Freaked me out a little, but it was nothing compared to the effect Gremlins had on me. Here's why it freaked me out. The way the movie started, it almost felt like I was watching It's a Wonderful Life. It had an idyllic town with the snow and the Christmas. Everything was wonderful, and then everything goes horribly wrong. And I know they're puppets, but these gremlins scared the heck out of me. So the movie's over. We go home. My friend's talking about how he loved gremlins much more than Ghostbusters. I'm like, yeah, that's great, whatever. I'm still thinking about these gremlins and how they're going to come in and eat my face. I get home, and I should describe my bedroom when I was growing up. I had a closet at the foot of my bed, and it was really close to the foot of my bed. It was maybe two feet from the foot of my bed, and it didn't have a door on it. So it was just a gaping black chasm at the edge of my bed. And I can't tell you how scary this closet was my whole youth. No matter what I would do, I at one point I took a lamp and put an extension cord so I could put it in there, and I would leave it in there at night. Because there's nothing worse than your imagination when you're a kid, and there is a giant closet looming over your bed. That night, I could hear every little thing in the house settling, and I was sure that every one of those things was coming from within my closet. And what was in my closet? Gremlins, of course. I must have slept 20 minutes that night, maybe. And for the next few weeks, the same thing happened. The only thing that made it easier to sleep was forgetting, as these horrors slowly eroded from my memory. But anytime I would see an ad or a commercial it would come right back, and I would be thinking, oh, is that Stripe sitting there in my closet on the top shelf waiting to grab me when I go to sleep? And to make matters worse, we had dogs, so whenever I would hear their paws against the floor, I was sure that it was the claws of the gremlin skittering across the floor. Gremlins was a powerful movie. I watch it now, and it looks silly, but to a kid, it was truly terrifying, and I wouldn't say in a bad way, in a way that makes you think about movies and constantly obsess over it. It was one of the first movies I wanted to watch when it came out on VHS. When it was reissued the following summer, I went out and saw it again. This movie acted as a gateway to horror films, and I became addicted. On today's show, we're going to talk about the cultural phenomenon that was Gremlins. We're going to talk about the movie, its stars, how it came to be, how it jumped out of the theaters and into pop culture, the products that were branded with it, the toys and other products that had the Gremlins label on it, and if that wasn't enough, we'll throw in a few surprises along the way. So without further ado, let's start the show.
it would be wrong to talk about the movie Gremlins without investigating a little bit about how the term Gremlin came to exist. The word is British in origin, and it probably started sometime after World War I, perhaps during World War I, and it was coined by pilots to describe creatures that would mess around with mechanical objects so that it would cause their planes to have problems. So if there was something wrong with your engine, you'd say, oh, a gremlin got into it. Basically, you would attribute any problems you were having with your plane to a gremlin. The earliest use of it in writing was in 1929 in a poem published in the journal Aeroplane. Now, I've read that the word itself, gremlin, comes from the Old English word gremian, which means to vex. Now, I don't know how true that is. It seems like a lot of work to get from Gremian to Gremlin. It's one letter, yes, but if you were a pilot, are you thinking of old English words to describe how angry you are? Maybe somebody will figure that out someday, but for now, all we can do is speculate. We may never know its origins, but one thing's for sure. The term became very popular during World War II, where members of the RAF would use it to describe any problems they had, and they even would say they saw these creatures. Now, to me, there's kind of a real simple explanation as to why you would create something like a gremlin, especially during a stressful time like war. Things would go wrong, and of course you need an explanation as to why those things went wrong. Instead of blaming your mechanic, or maybe yourself, it's much easier to blame a mythological creature. The gremlin became very popular during World War II, but it managed to jump over into mainstream popularity due to the efforts of a very famous author, Roald Dahl. Mr. Dahl actually served in the Royal Air Force in the Middle East, so he had some amount of familiarity with the gremlin myth, and probably blamed a gremlin after his accidental crash landing in the Libyan desert. In 1942, he was transferred to Washington, D.C. as an assistant air attaché, and it was there that he authored his novel, The Gremlins. This Gremlins book is famous in Disney circles since it was published for Disney and was optioned to make a major motion picture. The problem is they couldn't figure out a way to make the gremlins as likable as they wanted to. The children's book has been reprinted many times, and you can find it in most bookstores. It's a great story, and it has a great explanation as to why gremlins attack planes. As it turns out, the gremlins all lived in Britain, in this sort of idyllic world, and then the British destroyed their home to make an aircraft factory. And as revenge, they seek to destroy as many planes as they can. In the story, one of the gremlins takes down a plane. While the gremlin and the pilot are escaping, they make a deal that the gremlins will work with the RAF to destroy the Germans. So you get a touching story and a lovely bit of propaganda. The book obviously was never made into a Disney film, but there's still always rumors that they might try to revive the project, and I would love to see it. Perhaps Pixar could look into that. The Gremlin was never animated by Disney, but that didn't mean they didn't get their big screen and then eventually little screen debut, because Warner Brothers and their Merry Melodies made two cartoons that featured Gremlins. In 1943, Bob Clampett directed Falling Hair, which has Bugs Bunny in it, squaring off against a gremlin. And then in 1944, there was a cartoon called Russian Rhapsody, which was also a merry melody. And this one had Russian gremlins taking down a plane that was piloted by Adolf Hitler. Many of you probably have memories of these cartoons. They were shown a lot on television, and they were also most Americans' first exposure outside of the children's book to the gremlins. Then a very famous gremlin appeared in the 1960s in an episode of The Twilight Zone called Nightmare at 20,000 Feet. 
This was directed by Richard Donner and starred one of my favorite actors, William Shatner. This is the famous one where he's on a plane and there's something on the wing and he can't convince everybody that something bad is about to happen. So he keeps looking out there and there's this creature, which is sort of a gremlin, although it doesn't look like any of the gremlins that have ever been described before. It's more ape-like and large. It creeped me out when I was young, and this particular episode has been parodied on lots of different shows. One of my favorites is The Simpsons' Terror at Five and a Half Feet, where Bart is on a bus, and a gremlin that looks much more gremlin-like than the one in The Twilight Zone is tearing apart the bus. And of course, Bart is playing the role that Shatner made famous. So now we got a little background on how the gremlins got their start and how they became part of mainstream pop culture. But the question is, how did something that started in animated cartoons and children's books and the RAF myths translate into a feature motion picture? The movie Gremlins actually originated from the fevered pen of famous director Chris Columbus. This was before Columbus made it big, and he was trying to make a writing sample that could show people that he had some skill. This was back in the early 80s. And Columbus knew the myths about the gremlin, but he was really inspired by the creepiness of living in a loft at the time. In his own words, he said, When at night, what sounded like a platoon of mice would come out, and to hear them skittering around in the blackness was really creepy. So the idea of these dark, mysterious creatures coming out at night, hovering at the edge of sight in the darkness, is what inspired him to make what was originally more of a horror film. Now how did this writing sample get turned into a major motion picture? Enter Steven Spielberg. Spielberg read the writing sample and thought it was one of the most original things he had read in years, a hybrid horror comedy that would play to both children and adults. Spielberg optioned it and then started looking for a director. Joe Dante who had directed The Howling, which was also a hybrid comedy horror, was actually feeling a lull in his career when he was approached by Spielberg to do the movie. He agreed, and then the script went into rewrites. The rewrites changed a lot of what the original plot was, making it a little bit more family-friendly. In the original script, it was much, much darker. Billy's mother dies in it. She's killed by gremlins, and her head, just her head, is thrown down the stairs. Also, there was no Stripe in the original. You see, Gizmo actually turned into Stripe. Spielberg smartly decided that people liked Gizmo, and that Gizmo should actually appear throughout the whole movie, so he had Stripe become a completely separate gremlin, instead of Gizmo's alter ego. Some other deleted scenes from the original script involved people getting eaten alive at McDonald's, which... I'm not sure why they cut. It sounds like a perfect tie-in for a Happy Meal. Another deleted scene involved Billy's adorable dog also being killed by the gremlins. So even though the movie was terrifying to young children, it was a much darker movie at first and probably wouldn't have had the commercial success. It was more of a straight-up horror film with comedic additions as opposed to the balance that they set when they released it of making it equal parts comedy and horror. Now, all these changes actually took place under the guidance of Joe Dante, because when Spielberg chose him, he actually gave him a great amount of control. And there's a famous story about the speech in the movie where Kate talks about her father dying as Santa Claus on Christmas Eve, which is a famous urban legend. Now, Spielberg didn't like it. He didn't like that scene because it was hard to tell if it was supposed to be funny or if it was supposed to be dark. Me, I've always seen it as something that's dark, but... Dante insisted that it stay in the film, and Spielberg, who believed that a director should have control over their own project, backed down and even said to the film company, Warner Brothers, 
that it should stay in because that's what he wanted. So I know people say a lot of things about Spielberg and his directing style. I'm a big fan of his work, and I do always appreciate that he seems to stick to the idea that a director should be the final arbiter in what the product becomes. Because this is a dark family horror comedy, Gremlins actually holds a distinct honor in the history of American movies. It and Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom inspired the MPAA to reevaluate their rating system and come up with the PG-13 ratings, which of course has led to a generation of disenfranchised tweens sneaking into movies that they shouldn't be in. So, just as a warning, right now I'm going to start talking about the plot of Gremlins. I hope you have seen the movie Gremlins, but if you have not, I would maybe pause and go watch it or skip ahead. I'm pretty sure that most everyone listening to this podcast has probably seen Gremlins maybe even more than once. So let's get started. The movie Gremlins begins with Randall Peltzer, who's an inventor, traveling to Chinatown to try to sell his questionable inventions. There he meets an older Chinese man who is named Mr. Wing, but is credited as grandfather in the credits of the movie. And for some inexplicable reason, Wing offers to sell Randall a mugwai. And a mugwai is this adorable little creature that we come to know as Gizmo. And Randall names him, takes him home to his son, and it seems like it's going to be a great Christmas. But of course, there are rules for taking care of a mugwai. Rule number one, keep him out of the light. He hates bright light, especially sunlight. It will kill him. Number two, keep him away from water. Don't ever get him wet. Number three, and this is the most important rule, never, ever feed him after midnight. So as long as Randy's son, Billy, who was played by Zach Galligan, follows these rules, he should have a great pet. Of course, he breaks rule number two and number three almost immediately. First, he breaks number two which causes Gizmo to sprout other mugwai. And those mugwai are not quite as well-adjusted as Gizmo. And almost immediately afterwards, food is eaten by the mugwai after midnight, which turns them into the very evil gremlins. The town that they live in, which is called Kingston Falls, becomes inundated with lots of gremlins. And they cause all sorts of mischief, get people injured. So it's up to Billy and his girlfriend, Kate, who was played by Phoebe Cates, with the help of some other locals to try to take down the gremlins and restore order to Kingston Falls. Of course, at the very end, they defeat all of the gremlins, and Mr. Wing returns to repay Randall's money, which was $200, how much he paid for Gizmo, and says that Western society is not ready to properly take care of a mugwai. The movie wraps up with Randall in a narration at the end, warning the audience to take precautions in the case of any machinery failure in the homes, because it just might be a gremlin in your house. Dun dun dun. They really had a great cast in the movie. As I mentioned, Zach Galligan played the role of Billy, who's the main star of the movie. He brings a real nerdy, sort of kind of boy-next-door vibe to the movie. Another actor who was up for the role was Emilio Estevez, and they chose Zach even though he was pretty much an unknown at the time. Spielberg had a say in that. He said that he had seen the auditions for the movie, and they had decided to cast Phoebe Cates in the role of Kate, and that was even controversial at the time because Phoebe Cates had actually taken some risque parts, most notably the role of Linda Barrett in Vast Times at Ridgemont High. Spielberg saw Zach auditioning with Phoebe, and they had remarkable chemistry. 
And he put his two cents in, and obviously his opinion was respected, and they cast Zack in the movie. Now, those two were not the only actors in it. Dick Miller, who is a famous character actor who had worked steadily since the 50s in movies, especially in low-budget horror movies, played the World War II veteran Murray Futterman. And Murray Futterman is famous because he's the first one to recognize the Gremlins and references their World War II origins, which adds a layer of complexity to the mythology of the movie. You also had Key Luke, who played Mr. Wing. And Mr. Luke, who was already 80 when the movie was being made, actually looked too young for the part. So they took him and put makeup on him to make him look older, which I think is funny that someone who is a senior citizen has to be made to even look older to match their actual age. It is a problem I hope I have when I'm 80 years old. And if you've seen the movie, you probably know that this is one of Corey Feldman's earliest roles. Up till that point, he had mostly done commercial work. Rounding out the cast, you had... Hoyt Axton, who played Randy Peltzer, and Hoyt had a great voice and was a singer of some repute. Pop culture aficionados will recognize him as the singer of the Ballad of the Big Mac, which was featured in McDonald's commercials in the late 60s. You also had Francis Lee McCain, and Francis Lee McCain is in one of my favorite Albert Brooks movies, Real Life, which is very underrated and not seen by enough people nowadays. In the voice work, you had Howie Mandel playing the voice of Gizmo, and you had the great and powerful Frank Welker as the voice of Stripe, and he actually did most of the voices for the other Gremlins and Mugwai. That guy's got major talent. It was actually Welker, who was an established voiceover actor, who suggested that Gizmo be voiced by Howie Mandel, and most of the lines you hear from the Gremlins and the Mugwai were actually improvised by the voice actors themselves. The reasoning behind Gizmo's high-pitched, baby-like voice was put into words by Mandel. He said that Gizmo was cute and naive, so you know, I got in touch with that. I couldn't envision going any other way or doing something different with it. I didn't try a few different voices. So right off the bat, he knew what Gizmo was going to sound like and brought that right into the performance. Here's two pieces of interesting casting trivia. There were two famous actors who auditioned for roles in Gremlins, both of which are discussed in the DVD commentary of the special edition DVD of Gremlins that came out a couple of years ago. One was Kevin Costner. The other was Judd Nelson. I think that both of them could have tried out for the Billy role. Would have been a completely different movie with Kevin Costner as Billy, though, and maybe even more different if Judd Nelson was playing Billy. I think Zack was the right choice. Another element that you can't ignore in this movie was the puppetry. This was a time before computer special effects, and all of the gremlins and mugwise were actually puppets. These puppets were developed and designed by Chris Wallace, and there were several puppets of each type. As you heard Zack say, there would be several different versions of Gizmo that they would use in a scene, one where Billy would have to carry it, and then when he would set it down, it would be another puppet that was already placed there that could do other specific things. And they were quite advanced in that you could blink an eye, move the mouth, which meant that they were very temperamental and would often break, especially Gizmo. This constant breaking led to a great amount of frustration amongst the crew members, and because of that, they included a great and very satisfying scene for them, I imagine, in the film where the gremlins throw darts at Gizmo. And you could picture each one of those gremlins being a crew member who had to spend an extra four or five hours working on a scene because a puppet would not work. When the movie came out, people did not know 
what to do with it. It was such a hybrid film that the critics were all over the place. Some said it was wonderful and harkened back to old horror films. Others cautioned parents from bringing their kids to it because it will upset them or teach them how to throw pets into a microwave. Overall, none of this really mattered because people came to see the movie in droves. Gremlins was released in U.S. theaters on June 8, 1984, and it actually went up against a, another huge moneymaker, Ghostbusters, which came out the exact same day. Even with Ghostbusters, the movie did really well. It came in second that week, but it made $12.5 million in its first weekend, which was $1.1 million less than Ghostbusters. Since the movie only cost $11 million to make, which was over budget, but still not that high for 1984. The movie was lauded as a success and started to show up in headlines everywhere. People were all either Ghostbusters crazy or Gremlins crazy. Me, I was both. By the end of its American screening on November 29, 1984, the movie had grossed $148 million domestically. 1984 was a great year for movies because that was the fourth highest grossing film of the year after... Listen to this. Beverly Hills Cop, Ghostbusters, and Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom. What a year. That summer it opened in other countries, in Argentina and Spain. Then in the fall, it came to Europe. And by the end of the year, it had gone completely worldwide. One of the great things about Gremlins is that the voices of the Gremlins themselves could actually be modified pretty easily since they were puppets. So they would actually rewrite some of the dialogue and some of the humor to try to take in cultural influences from these other countries. And Joe Dante has said that he thinks that's why the film did so well internationally, because it actually appealed to a local populace. There was an ever-growing number of complaints from people that said that the movie was too violent, that they were sold on a cuddly family picture, but what they were really given was one of the most terrifying movies that they'd ever seen in their lives. And it was a mix of the two things. Believe me, it was all in the papers and in magazines about how scary this movie was, and people still continued to bring their children to it despite this. The Gremlins juggernaut didn't stop at the end of 1984, because in 1985 they actually brought it back to theaters, where I went and saw it again. It came out on August 30th, 1985, and it managed to gross several million dollars more, bringing the domestic gross up to $153 million. That year, it was also released on VHS. If you had a VCR, you could rent the movie, and it made close to $80 million in sales, in rentals alone that year. Since then, the film has obviously been released on DVD. That came out in 1997 and again in 1999, and then on August 2002, a special edition DVD that had great commentary and deleted scenes was released. Gremlins did pretty well on the merchandising front. There was... A considerable amount of stuffed gizmo toys in my neighborhood the year it came out. And they also released a line of action figures. Tops made trading cars based on the film. And if you had Hardee's in your neighborhood, which we never had any Hardee's near us when I was growing up, they had a five book and cassette or 45 record adaptation of the film story that I would love to get my hands on. I didn't even know that existed until I started reading up for this podcast. If you were a cereal eater like me, you might remember that Gremlins also was a cereal. I ate it voraciously because I'm a big Captain Crunch fan, and that is exactly what Gremlins cereal tasted like. And here's a bit of the commercial that came out for the cereal at the time. Hungry? Hungry as a Gremlin? Here's Gremlins cereal. Gremlins, Gremlins, fight after fight. What a tasty way to satisfy a Gremlin appetite. 
Now, of course, what would an 80s movie be without a video game based on it? Several video games were made for Gremlins. A interactive fiction game based on the film called Gremlins The Adventure was released for various home computers at the time, including the Commodore 64, which I had. You could also get it on the BB Micro, the ZX Spectrum, and the Acorn Electron. The game was written by Brian Howarth and was text-based with full-color illustrations on some of the screens. In addition, there was a Gremlins game for the Atari 2600 and a much better one for the Atari 5200. But the Gremlins train has not stopped yet. Recently, there has been a board game released, and in this decade, there has been two video games released. One for the Game Boy, Gremlins Unleashed, which was about Gizmo trying to catch Stripe and 30 other Gremlins, while the Gremlins try to turn Gizmo into a Gremlin. The very next year, Gremlins Stripe vs. Gizmo was released, and in that game, both Gizmo and Stripe were playable characters. So if you wanted to get your evil Gremlin on, you could. As we all know, Gremlins spawned a sequel, and that will be a podcast unto itself. So look forward to that podcast in the near future. But not only did it spawn a sequel, it actually inspired lots of rip-off movies that I find wonderful in their own right. Ghoulies, Troll, Critters... Hobgoblins, Beasties, and Munchies were all movies that derived a lot of their story and a lot of their energy from the Gremlins. Now, I know Critters and Ghoulies actually began development way before Gremlins, but I would think they would not have been as successful if it wasn't for the fact that people had Gremlin fever after the Gremlins had been released. Speaking of Gremlin fever, two other countries seem to have appreciated the Gremlins a lot more than we did, and boy, did they get rewarded for it. In Australia and Germany, at the Warner Brother Movie World theme parks, they actually opened a ride called The Great Gremlins Adventure. And The Great Gremlins Adventure was a ride-through attraction where you started out watching outtakes from Hollywood's Golden Age, and then things start to go wrong, and you have to escape. What has happened, of course, is that gremlins have taken over the ride. And so to escape, you have to go through the vault, and there are gremlins reenacting scenes, getting into all sorts of zany madness. It's definitely a very Gremlins 2 sort of feel, but what a great attraction to have gone on. I wish that I was in Germany and Australia at the time to have seen these, because they never opened one here in America. The Both rides closed in 2001, sadly, the one in Germany at least, to make room for a Scooby-Doo attraction. The information itself is scant, but Gizmo is definitely in it, and at least in the German version of the attraction, the ride is hosted by ALF, which seems really random, but just awesome. Can you imagine getting on a ride, and there's ALF and Gizmo hosting it, and then you go through and gremlins start attacking you? That sounds like the greatest thing in the world. Plus, you would have people dressed as Gizmo in a giant suit walking around. That sounds like heaven to me. The footage can't be done justice just by audio, so if you go to YouTube and search Gremlins On Ride, Movie World Germany, you can actually see the video itself of the attraction and see Alf and Gizmo together. It's all in German, so brush up, and I think you'll get a real kick out of it. So now it's 2009, and where are we as Gremlin fans? Well, Joe Tante has said he will not be involved in a Gremlins 3 project, although one has supposedly been in the works for decades. It's been a couple of years, and fans had heard on and off that the project was a go. There had been a lull in Gremlins news until last year, when Zach Galligan said in September that he did in fact hear that Gremlins 3 is a go, and that he would somehow be involved with it. I would love to see them finish up the story, and finally see the Billy that is responsible enough to have a Mugwai as a pet. 
Thanks for listening to the show. For more retro fun, drop by the website at retroist.com. You can follow me on Twitter. I'm at twitter.com slash retroist. And you can follow me on Facebook at facebook.com slash retroist. If you have an idea for the show, why not email it to me at retroist at retroist.com. Thanks for listening, and I hope you have a great weekend. Because you never can tell. There just might be a gremlin in your house. This has been a Retroist production. Goodbye.